The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22 through verse 25. Luke records for us these words. He says, One day he, that's Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we have been walking through this gospel, you have been showing yourself to us. You have been revealing your nature and your character. We've been seeing you in all of your glory and all of your power and all of your love and all of your mercy. We've seen much of you, and yet there's much more for us to see. So this morning, as we look at your word, your holy word, your revelation of yourself to us. May you come alive in our midst. May we see you like we haven't seen you before. Shake off the dust from our minds, Lord. Open our eyes that we might behold wonders in your word. For we pray it in your holy name. Amen. What do you do when the calm in your life turns into absolute chaos? It's an experience I'm sure that everyone who's in the room has had at some point. When life is going along just like normal and everything seems ordinary and and going the way things normally go, when out of the blue something extraordinary happens. And what was previously just a calm, normal, ordinary season of life gets turned completely upside down. And the calm of your life is no longer calm, it's, it's now chaos. Chaos that you can't get your arms around. Chaos that you don't fully understand. Chaos that you can't fully make sense of and chaos that you absolutely cannot control. What do you do in those moments? How do you respond when that happens in your world? It's a very important question. Because it's one thing for us to say that we believe something. It's another thing altogether for us to put our faith into practice. This has been a major part of the message that we've been seeing in Luke chapter 8 all throughout up to this point, all the way up to verse 22. In fact, at the very end of the previous section, in verse 21, Jesus 
left us with these words last week. He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and what? And do it. There's more to it than just hearing the word of God. There's more to it than just the intellectual piece of of affirming what we hear. There's an experiential piece to faith. And what we do with what we say we believe, that's where the rubber hits the road. When life gives us uh, opportunities to practice what we say we believe, it's then, it's in those moments that really the truth comes out about what we actually believe. And our actions in those kinds of moments, they do one of two things. They, they either validate the faith that we claim or they contradict it. And they tell a different story. There are an awful lot of people who identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and who affirm orthodox theology who become absolute practicing heretics when the calm in their life turns into chaos. Living as though Christ is absolutely irrelevant to the moment. Our actions say a a whole lot more about what we believe than our words. And and that's been a message that we've seen sort of running all throughout Luke 8. And we see it running really all throughout the Bible. James, the half-brother of Christ, the, the author of the small book of James, a little further along in your New Testament, talked about this over and over and over again. The idea that our actions say a whole lot more about the true nature of our faith than our words do. In James 1, he says this, verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he goes on in chapter one to talk about the difference between just being someone who hears and affirms and someone who actually does. And he makes the case that those who say that they hear and say that they believe but do not do are really doing nothing more than deceiving themselves. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. Like literally four verses later, he begins to give examples of how this can play out in life. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives himself, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The person who claims to to have an orthodox faith, who claims to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who claims to be a Christian, but absolutely lives a life with an uncontrolled tongue, they're they're just content to constantly slander and critical speech and, and unkind words and words that stir up and words that tear down. If that's the way the life is lived, then the religion is worthless. If that's what the actions say, then the claim to faith is false. Our actions speak louder than our words. In chapter 2, verse 17, James writes, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. To which James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You want to know what I believe? Watch what I do. Watch what I do. And then you'll know what I believe. The disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ have been watching him now for some time do ministry. They've seen him do all sorts of things. 
They've seen his power on display in numerous ways. They've watched him cast out a demon from a demon-possessed man in Capernaum. They watched him walk into a synagogue on a Sabbath day and heal right in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees a man who had a withered hand, and that withered hand came to life right in front of them. They watched him heal a centurion's servant from a distance. He didn't even get near him. He didn't have to say anything to him. He didn't have to touch him. It just happened by the power of Christ. They watched him walk up on a a funeral procession for this dear widow who's lost her only son and all hope for life and a future. And he raised that young man from the dead. Gets up and walks They've seen the power of Christ on, dis- on display in, in really vivid sorts of ways. And to some degree, they believe in him, but their belief and their faith is absolutely incomplete. It's incomplete. And Jesus is about to expose the true weakness of their faith in a very, very dramatic fashion. And he's going to provide for them a lesson in life that I guarantee you these men never, ever forgot. Now, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of context for uh, this particular event. As we've said a couple of times walking through Luke's gospel, Luke is organizing, particularly in this section of his gospel, his material thematically rather than chronologically. But thankfully, in this case, Mark and Matthew both record this event as well. And Mark tells us that this particular event takes place at the end of a full day of teaching. It's the the same day that Jesus has taught the the parable of the soils that we studied earlier. But it's been a full and long day. Jesus has been at it all day since early in the morning teaching. And we're told in verse 22 that he gets into a boat with his disciples and he says, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. There's really an ordinary beginning to the story. Everything is calm. Sort of the flow of the text is calm to chaos to calm. And here at the beginning, everything is normal. Luke, Luke, uh, Luke just gives it to us in sort of a, a, a matter-of-fact sort of a way. He says they, they, they go to the other side of the lake. That's their goal. They get in boats to go there. It's been, it's been a busy day. Jesus has been doing ministry. The crowds have grown, and they've been following him, and they're sort of pressing in on him and the disciples. And, and so Jesus wants to, to cross the, the lake to the other side for a number of reasons on this particular day. At least at some level, he's trying to get away from the crowds for a moment. He's trying to, 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 to get to the other side of the lake. And, and, and as we'll see, this happens from time to time. They'll, sometimes the crowds will, will go all the way around the lake and, and get to him on the other side. But at least for a, a moment, there's, there's a respite from the crowds. And, and that's at least in part what he's after here. But more than that, we're going to see that he needs rest. He just needs some rest. Furthermore, as we read further in Luke chapter 8, we find out that he's got an appointment to keep on the other side of the lake. And so for these reasons at least, and perhaps others, Jesus tells his disciples, let's get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. 
Now, before we go much further, we need to identify who's with him getting in the boats. We're told his disciples, Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples. And so that certainly includes the 12 who were his apostles who were closest to him. But Mark gives us an interesting detail. In Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 36, he tells us, and other boats were with him. There were other boats with him. So it wasn't just Jesus and his 12. There were other disciples. The word disciple is often used in the the New Testament to mean just literally followers, people who are following him. So it's Jesus and his inner circle of 12, and there are other followers, and and they get in other boats. And and so this is a bit of 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 a boat caravan going across the lake on this particular day. I don't know if you've been to... Uh, to Israel before, or you've ever actually seen the, the Sea of Galilee, which is what this lake is that Luke is referring to here. But it is a, an, interesting, an interesting sort of geo, geographical place. And in the Bible, the place goes by different names. It goes by the, the Sea of Galilee. It goes by uh, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's called in one particular passage, the Sea of Chenereth. In another place, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, and here, Luke just simply calls it a lake. But it's a fascinating place. It's a, it's, it's a large freshwater lake. And if you could see it, you, would, you wouldn't think it was really all that remarkable. Uh, it's a lake that, that's filled with fresh water. It's approximately 13 miles wide by 7 miles long. I don't know, do we have, do we have some visual for people to look at here? It's about 13 miles sort of uh, wide by seven miles long. And sort of, you can just get a little little bit of drone footage here that gives you some sense for uh, kind of what this lake looks like, at least from a sort of a bird's eye view. Uh, The lake itself is about 680 feet below sea level. So it's it's remarkably low. It, It is in fact the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. Uh, it, it sort of uh, sits in a, uh, geographically in a bit of a, of a bowl-shaped area. It's surrounded really on all sides by, by some hills and in some places some really significant mountains. And so, the, so if you were to sort of look in an aerial view, you would see all these hills and mountains, and there would be like a bowl, and in the middle of the bowl sits this, this particular lake or this particular body of water called the Sea of Galilee. And when you see the footage and you, you look at it, you just think, man, it doesn't look very big. Is that your impression? It just looks like you get in a boat and just tootle across to the other side in a few minutes. But you don't really do it that way. Again, it's 13 by 7 miles long. And what happens is because of the geography of the area, you have really cool air that, that's up in the mountains. And at times that cool air in the mountains comes rushing down and it collides with the warm water at the surface of the lake. And when this happens, it whips up some pretty remarkable storms on this lake that can come quickly without very much warning. In fact, in 1992, uh, that kind of a storm popped up and and, and the winds from that particular storm whipped up waves that were over 10 feet high that crashed into the, the, the shore at the city of Tiberias and did an awful lot of damage. So though the lake seems small from a bird's eye view, it's a really significant place, and it's no small thing to, to go from one side to the other, even today with modern technology. So you can imagine in the first century with sort of primitive technology, uh, as far as boat making and sailing and such, it was an altogether different sort of an experience. But on this particular day, they get in boats on that particular lake, 
and they set out to cross it. And you can sort of imagine the scene. They, they all get in the boats and, and, you know, they push off from the shore and they, they get past the initial sort of waves there and they, they, they set sail and, and begin to move across. And, and what we're told right here at the beginning of sort of the outing, uh, the first thing we're told is they get in the boats and they go out and the first thing that happens is Jesus takes a nap. He takes a nap. I love this. Jesus takes a nap. It's not ungodly to take a nap. Jesus took a nap. <laughs> the next time you're at home and you're worn out and you lay on the couch and you take a nap, you just, as you doze off to sleep, you can say, I'm being like Jesus right now. <laughs> Taking a nap. Mark tells us in verse 38 of, ch- 38, uh, 38 of chapter 4, he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. It's a remarkable little note that we have. It's important to the, to the flow of the story, but it's important for us to stop and just make a point that Jesus needed rest. He, 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 the, the crushing demands of the day, the crushing demands on his physical body for the ministry that he is engaged in literally has him physically exhausted, and he needs rest. He needs to sleep. He needs to recharge. Though he is God, he is man in every way that you and I are man. In every sense, except that he had no sin. But he has a human body, and, and, and he, he has all of the needs that come with having a human body. He needed to eat, and he needed to sleep, and he needed to drink. All the things that you needed to do, he needed to do. And on this particular day, he is literally wiped out. So they get in the boat, and he lays down, and immediately he drops to sleep. But at this point, there's nothing extraordinary about this day. Everything about the scene is completely ordinary. Everything is calm and everything is under control. Peter, Andrew, James, John, these men were career fishermen. They, they, they understood this lake and they understood boating and sailing and they understood fishing. They were well acquainted with all of this and they had set sail across this lake hundreds and hundreds of times. They literally could have done it in their sleep. There's not one hint that there's anything unusual on the horizon. It's just a normal day. And the men are operating in their own strength and they're operating under this illusion of security. They are experienced sailors operating in their area of expertise. And Jesus is resting. But then, in a moment... In a moment that nobody saw coming, everything changes, and everything changes fast. The calm and ordinary day that they're enjoying turns into utter chaos in a moment. But before we look at the chaos, I want to make a point. I want you to notice something very important. There's one reason why these men are in this boat on this lake at this moment. One reason. And that reason is Jesus led them there. Jesus led them there. What is about to take place is is no surprise to him whatsoever. It is, in fact, a part of his plan. It's a part of his purpose. This lake is going to become his schoolhouse. And although he's been teaching all day long, his teaching ministry is not ended for the day. He's got one more lesson to teach. And he's going to do so in very vivid fashion. calm of these men's day is about to be interrupted by some utter chaos 
And the reason that that happens is because Jesus leads them directly into it. Now, it's not every time that our worlds go from calm to chaos that this is the case. But it most certainly is sometimes. And in this case, there's no other explanation for what's happening. Christ wills for them to endure this chaos. And so endure it, they will. Luke tells us, a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. So out of nowhere, this windstorm, these, these cold winds from the mountains blast down onto the lake and, and it whips up a, a storm and, and you can sort of imagine this scene, the, 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 the skies that were, that were blue start to turn gray and, and then the clouds roll in and it gets black and, and then the wind starts to, to pick up and, and rattle the sails a little bit and, and the rain starts to, to fall and, and the, the, the water that was, that, was, that was slick as glass begins to rock and move a little bit and the boat begins to, to bob up and down as the swells sort of rise and fall. These men had seen this before. They knew what to do. The fishermen at least knew what to do. You can sort of hear them saying to the other guys in the boat, buckle up boys, this is going to be a rough ride to the other side. But this is no ordinary storm. The biblical writers tell us that this storm is more fierce and it's more brutal than anything these men have ever seen before. Luke simply gives it to us in matter of fact. He just says that the, that the windstorm comes down on the lake and they're filling with water. Mark says it this way in verse 37. He says that the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling in Matthew's account, he uses the word, the Greek word seismos to, to, to describe the storm. And you may recognize that language, seismos. We, we, we have words that, in English that come from that, seismic. When you hear seismic, you think of things like earthquake or the, the ground rattling and shaking. And that's where this word comes from. The focus is really on the shaking of the sea. And one of the Greek dictionaries that, that I have says this about that word. It says, though the term... Uh, obviously implies the strong action of the wind, the focus is upon the violent motion caused by the waves. So the winds pick up, and it's, it's as though a hurricane is, has arrived on this particular lake, and, and the winds are whipping, and the sail is, is just whipping in the wind, and the rain is pouring, and, and the, the surface of the sea is literally shaking violently this, this boat, and the water and the waves are crashing into the sides of the boat and, and the water is coming in and the boat is beginning to fill and these men are, are bailing for dear life. Can you imagine that primitive boat just rising and falling on the swells and the waves crashing over the side, soaking the men in the boat and they're feverishly trying to stay afloat. They do everything they know to do. And at some point in the midst of this, they come to a conclusion. And here's the conclusion. We're all going to die. We're going to die right here on this lake. This storm's going to kill us. Having done everything they knew to do, things are getting worse. And there's nothing else to do. And sheer panic sets in on the boat. Literally, they are screaming, We're perishing! means being destroyed 
these men whose lives were calm just a few minutes earlier are now fighting for their lives. And they've come to the conclusion that they're about to die. And they're terrified, and there's utter chaos on the boat. And Luke tells us, and they went and they woke him. Now, as I read this, my first question is, how in the world is he still asleep? I mean, I can be a heavy sleeper. In fact, I, I, I like to sleep. I'm not very good at it, but I like to sleep. I'm not very good at it because I have this thing called sleep apnea that just makes it not very satisfying to sleep. But I like to do it, and I can sleep pretty hard. I remember as a teenager, when Hurricane Hugo came through Charleston, I slept through most of Hurricane Hugo. It happened at night, so I went to bed and slept. I woke up the next morning and looked at the, the utter destruction outside and was horrified. Like, how did I sleep through that? But I was in a, a, a nice, sturdy, modern home in a comfortable bed. I wasn't in a boat, and I wasn't on the sea, and I wasn't unsheltered from the storm. But Jesus is asleep. The storm is raging. There's pandemonium on the boat through the noise and through the movement and through the water and through the panic. He's still asleep. And the contrast is really remarkable, isn't it? These men are in sheer panic, convinced they're perishing. And Jesus is sound asleep. He's not a worry in the world. Same boat, same storm different reactions, different postures. In part, Jesus is exhausted and his body desperately needed the rest, but in another sense, he fully trusted his heavenly father and he understood that he was on a divine timetable from the moment he was born to the moment he was gonna die and there wasn't one thing that could happen between birth to death that could do anything to alter God's sovereign plan for his life. He didn't have to worry about a storm he was under the care of his heavenly father every moment of his life. And he knew in a sense, until it was appointed for him to die, he was invincible. And so he's asleep. The men wake him up, master, master, we're perishing. And, and the scene is they're, they're just screaming at him, screaming at him, master, master, wake up, we're perishing. Matthew records that they're saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Don't you know we're about to die? Save us. Mark says that they're screaming, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And I imagine that they're all saying all of those things at the same time in sort of this cacophony of panic. In verse 24, we're told he awoke rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm at this cries and the screams of these men Jesus wakes up and I imagine he rubs the sleep out of his eyes and I'm not sure what the men expected him to do in this particular moment but what he actually does absolutely terrifies them we're told that he rebuked the wind and the raging waves Mark says, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Jesus literally wakes up, rubs the sleep from his eyes, and he stands in the boat, and he shouts at the storm. 
settle down. And it does. Now, at first, this seems a bit odd, I think, when we read it, because why does Jesus speak to a storm? A storm doesn't have ears. A storm can't hear. A storm doesn't have a brain to process the words that are being said and to respond to it. So why is it that Jesus speaks out loud to the storm? Is it because the storm needs to hear him? No, it's because the disciples need to hear him. He shouts out loud and speaks to the storm because the disciples need to clearly understand what is happening so that there's no confusion in the end as to what happened and to why it happened. They will know when this is all said and done that it was at his word that calm is restored. So he stands up and he says to the storm, cut it out, stop it. And Luke tells us in very simple language, and they ceased. The wind and the waves ceased, and there was calm. As quickly as the storm had blown in, instantly it's over, and the storm stops in its tracks. There's no wind, there's no waves, there's no rain, there's no darkness. There's just calm like a, like a sea of glass. Must have been an absolute jaw dropper of a moment for these men with water dripping off of their hair to look around and to see what happened at his word. And then Jesus looks at them and he says to them, Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Such a clear and simple question. Mark records this. He, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Have you still no faith? The disciples' biggest problem on this particular evening was not the storm. Their biggest problem was their lack of faith. And it was because they lacked faith that they were overcome by fear and anxiety and worry and panic. Jesus understands, and he says to them, where's your faith? He just puts his finger right on the heart of the issue. Men, where is your faith? And the question itself implies that their fear and their panic was irrational. It implies that, that they had no good reason to be afraid. Now, you and I look at this as outside observers, and we say, listen, anybody in their position in a boat that's in a storm like that is going to naturally be afraid. Life has given them reasons to be genuinely terrified. But Jesus', Jesus question to them implies that their terror is not rational. Why? Because he was present in the boat. Their fear wasn't rational because they had Christ in the boat with them. Though he was sleeping, he was there. He was not surprised by the storm. He was resting peacefully. There was no panic. There was no fear. There was no worry. And if they truly understood who he was, and if they truly trusted him, they would have absolutely no reason in the world to have been afraid of a storm. They would have been able to say, like the psalmist in Psalm 23, who says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. Because you're with me. 
the fact that Jesus was with them, it should have made all the difference in the world. But for most of this storm, that particular fact made no difference whatsoever. Their reaction in this moment was no different than any other pagan that would have responded in the same situation. They were functioning as practicing atheists. Their obsessive focus on the storm and fighting it in their own power had effectively erased Jesus from the entire picture, and they were operating as though he was not with them. Like he was powerless to help. Like he didn't care about them and their plight. Like he was completely absent. They were operating like life and death hung in the balance based on their own ability to get themselves out of the situation. They were operating like you and I operate most of the time. And they only cry out to Jesus as an absolute last resort. That's what they do. When they are completely out of other options, when they've come to the absolute end of their own efforts and they can't think of one more thing to do in their own strength and they are in abject terror and panic, it's only then that they go and think, maybe we ought to wake Jesus up. Maybe we ought to see if he can help us in this. If they truly understood who he was, if they truly understood his power and his might and his love, for them, that would have been the first thing they did instead of the last. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, where is your faith? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? Why are you trusting in yourself in the midst of all of this chaos? Why are you thinking that it's up to you to deal with all this? Why are you acting as though your, your survival depends upon you? It doesn't. It doesn't depend upon you. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and something has happened in your life to take the calm of yesterday and it's turned it into some sort of new flavor of chaos in your world. Maybe the people around you that are sitting here this morning are all smiling and everybody looks like they've got life just completely under control and everything is going well, but the odds are in a crowd this size, there's somebody whose calm has already been turned to chaos. And even right now, as you, you've, 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 you've built up the, the, the sort of the motivation to come and sit in a church congregation and to sing songs and to open up God's word, even right now, you're all worked up with fear and you're overcome with anxiety and worry and panic at the chaos that's going on in your life. Do you, hear, do, you, do you hear Christ saying the same thing to you? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? Have you forgotten that I'm in the storm with you? Have you forgotten that this isn't all up to you? I was listening this week to uh, a podcast from the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching, and it's about, this podcast is about the life of Dr. John MacArthur, one of, one of my heroes of the faith. But this particular episode I was listening to this week was talking about suffering, and 
and some things that had, were personal that had happened in his life. And back in 1993 or 1997, I can't recall which year, his wife was in a horrible car accident along with their daughter who was a freshman in college at the time. And so one car accident, the car just flipped and rolled and and the result of the accident was his wife had broken her neck in a couple of different places. And her life was literally hanging in the balance for quite some time. And as I was listening to this podcast, they did an interview with one of his daughters who was talking about sort of the dynamics of this particular event in the life of the family. And I remember her words very, very distinctly. It really stood out to me. She said, you know, it was three days after the accident, and she said, uh, we were at home, and, and it was me and my dad, and uh, we, were, we were sort of in a hallway off the kitchen, and she said, I really was not okay. My emotions were all over the place, and, and I was, you know, I didn't know, is mom going to be okay? Is she going to survive? Is she going to live, or is she going to die? And really, she said, I, I was a mess. But her words were really, really piercing. She said, in that moment, she said, uh, she said, my dad walked up to me and he put his hands on my face. And he said to me, if you believe what you say you believe, start acting like it. Start acting like it. Now she was quick to say that he said it with fatherly compassion she said, I've never forgotten that, that moment. She said, it snapped me to reality. That's right. If I really believe what I say I believe, I need to act like it when the moment arises. And that's what Jesus was saying to these men. Where's your faith? If you say you belong to me, act like it because they weren't acting like it. Well, their response was abject fear. That's what, that's what Luke says to us. He says they were, they were afraid. They were afraid. These poor men go from one kind of fear to another kind of fear, don't they? Their fear of dying in a storm is replaced by fear of the one who's speaking to them in this particular moment. This storm had tremendous power, uh, but Jesus had greater power. The storm that they thought would kill them obeyed at the word of Christ. And they realized in a moment's time that they were standing in the presence of power unlike anything that they had ever seen before. And they had no category in their brains for what they were observing and what they were seeing and what they were experiencing and who they were standing in front of. They had never seen anything like it. And they realized in that moment that the gulf between Jesus and them was so infinite and it was so clear. They had completely exhausted their power and they were dying. And Jesus simply speaks and it's done. So they say to one another, who is this? That he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Who is this? These men knew Jesus, yet they did not know Jesus. They knew Jesus, but they did not know fully who he was. They didn't know him like they know him now. 
And their question is a rhetorical question. Who is this that even the wind, even he, he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? The, the only answer to that question is God. That's who he is. There's no, other, there's no other answer for the question. Who can control the wind and the waves? Who can speak to the seas and they obey? There is no one who can do that except God. Only God has the power to rule nature. Only the creator has that kind of authority over the creation. Only the one who made it and the one who sustains it has the power to command it. The Bible declares this over and over. Psalm 65, verse 5 through 7. By awesome deeds you, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. The tumult of the people. In Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea with its waves. When it rise, when its waves rise, you still them. Who's the only person who can do that in the midst of a storm? It's God. It's God. And they're looking at Jesus, they're saying, who in the world is this that commands the winds and the waves? And the only answer is, he's God. That's who he is. He's God. The disciples had seen Jesus and they had heard Jesus, but now they've experienced his power for themselves. They'd watched him heal others. They had seen him do miracle, miracles for other people, but this time it was their lives that were on the line. This time it wasn't someone else who was desperate. It was them who was desperate. This time it wasn't a poor widow. It wasn't a man in the synagogue. It wasn't a Roman centurion. It was them that needed their lives to be saved in a moment. And everything's different when it's you. Everything's different when it's you. This time he saved them from certain death. And for the first time, they truly saw him for who he is. He's God. That's who he is. He's God walking among men. And they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified because some things become very, very clear to them. He is almighty God. As powerful as that storm was, he's more powerful. And he is not who they thought he was. He has not come to usher them into some earthly kingdom of ease. He has not come to set up a kingdom where they're going to become wealthy and powerful and rule with him on earth. He has not come to, to bring comfort and ease and security and power and wealth into their lives. He has come to do whatever it takes to make them holy. Even if that means leading them right into the middle of a near-death experience. Listen, one of the reasons that you and I don't look to Jesus immediately when the storms come into our life is because we've created a silly caricature of him in our minds. We know him, but we don't know him. We've created this illusion of Jesus in our minds. We've made him into what we would like him to be. We've convinced ourselves that he is something other than almighty God. We've convinced ourselves in some ways that his sole purpose in our lives is to make us happy and to make us comfortable and to make us healthy and to keep us secure. 
We've convinced ourselves in our minds that his whole purpose in our lives and the whole goal of following him is so that we can have a safe and easy and comfortable life. And that is a caricature that is absolutely false at every point. That is not who Jesus is. That is not why he has come. And that is not what he intends for your life or mine. The great children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Probably some of you have read it. C.S. Lewis, great children's story. You know, Aslan, the lion, is representative for Christ in the story. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this interesting scene where Lucy and, and uh, Susan are talking with Mr. and Miss, Mrs. Beaver. And the dialogue goes kind of like this. If you read the story, you'll remember it. If you haven't, well, you'll get it. They're trying to figure out exactly who Aslan is. And Lucy asks, is, is he a man? Aslan a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood. And the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. He's the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he... Is he quite safe? I, I, sh I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie. Make no mistake, Miss Beaver said. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Ms. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen. We have to get this stupid notion out of our heads that the highest goal of Jesus in our life is to keep us happy and safe and secure, insulated from trouble with a calm life that just goes the way we want it to go. That is not his plan for your life, nor mine. If you follow Jesus, you need to understand one thing about him. He is a king and he is not safe, but he is good. Mark Buchanan in his book, Your God is Too Safe, he says this. He says, the safe God asks nothing of us. He gives nothing to us. He never drives us to our knees in hungry, desperate praying. He never sets us on our feet in fierce, fixed determination. The safe God never whispers in our ears anything but greeting card slogans. And he certainly never asks that we embarrass ourselves by shouting from the rooftop. A safe God never inspires Excuse me, a safe God inspires neither awe, nor worship, nor sacrifice. The safe God has no power to console us in grief or shake us from the complacency of our hearts or rescue us from the pit. He just putters around in his garden, smiling benignly, waves now and then, and mostly spends a lot of his time in his room doing puzzles. This milk-toast pampering deity is nothing but a cosmic lackey. He's an errand boy we call on to make our golf games pleasant. 
or to help us secure escape from reality for a little while and then summarily dismiss. Worship him, revere him, die for him. You must be kidding. One of the reasons that we don't run to Christ when our calm turns into chaos immediately is because we have a stupid idea of who he is. We've turned him into this sort of a cosmic vending machine that we punch a button when we want something expecting to give it to us and then dismiss him in the rest of our lives. Well, our time's up. Let me close with saying this. Why, why does Jesus lead them into the storm? We, we always want to know why. I want to know why. I like that question. I'm going to just give you a list. I think all of these are pretty obvious. Reasons why Jesus took these men into that storm, and they're quite frequently the same reasons why Jesus leads you into the chaos sometimes. He took them there to expose the true condition of their faith. These men were under the illusion that their faith was strong. And in fact, their faith was weak and it was incomplete. And they needed to go through a storm in order to see it. If you had asked these men on the shore before this particular outing on the Sea of Galilee, how about, tell us about your faith in Christ. Do you believe in him? They would have said to you, absolutely we believe in him. We're his inner circle. We're closer to Jesus than anybody is. But the storm exposed reality. They didn't really trust Christ. Not when the rubber hit the road. And sometimes God will turn the calm of your life into chaos. And he'll do it in mine. Because we're deceiving ourselves about where we stand with him. And we need to see the reality. So he'll blow a storm in. To make it clear where we stand. He also did it to show his nature and his power. That's the point. The point of Luke recording this is that we would know that Jesus is God in human flesh. That's who he is. He's nothing short of almighty God, and he is all-powerful, and there is none who rise above him. He also did this to destroy their illusion of control. They needed a stark lesson in his sovereignty over life and death. They needed to be taken to the end of their rope, to the very end of their control, to be put in a situation where their lives were on the line and they could do absolutely nothing about it. They needed to experience him simply say a word and everything go calm. They needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when their lives go from calm to chaos, Jesus Christ is all they need. And so he's a, they needed to know he's a sovereign God. They needed to know he does nothing without purpose. They needed to know that he's good, and, and when they cry to him, he'll respond. But they needed to let go of this illusion that they're sovereign over their own lives. And so do you, and so do I. We need to know this. We need to be reminded that he is sovereign and we are not. When our world gets turned upside down and a relationship begins to fall apart or tragedy strikes or our children are in danger or the money is running out or we get some unfavorable diagnosis from the doctor or we have to say goodbye to somebody that we love for now or worst of all, death comes knocking on our door, we have to be able to look to the one who is truly in control and realize that it's not us, it's him. And in any of those moments and in any storm that blows our way, just like the disciples on the sea this day, Jesus Christ is all we need. We are not in control. Stop acting like we are. They needed to see the nature 
of salvation and their need to be saved. They need to see that they can't save themselves, that only Christ can do that. They saw that in vivid color. And Christ needed to teach them how to trust him. You know, some of the reasons why the chaos in our lives doesn't go away is because we refuse to learn the lessons. And so God continues to bring storms to get us to let go of the illusion of control and to trust him. You know, at the end of the day, this is all Christianity has to offer. It's not health, it's not wealth, it's not comfort, it's not earthly security, it's not an easy life, it's not a storm-free life. The only thing Christianity has to offer is the only comfort in life and death, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all Christianity has. It has Christ. In 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism was written, and the first question is, what is our only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. The only comfort in life and death is this, that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that apart from or without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Did you get that? He preserves my life in such a way that apart from the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. All things must work together for my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is our only hope in life and death? What is it that Christianity has to offer? That's it. That's it. All Christianity has to offer is Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something, my friends. When your life goes from calm to chaos, he's all you need. He's all you need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this this message resonates in our hearts because it's so vivid It's so clear. It doesn't allow us to hide and evade. We are quick to critique critique these disciples and say how stupid to be so fearful when Jesus is with you. And yet, that's the testimony of our lives in so many ways. When the calm of our world turns into chaos. And we quickly try to muster our own strength and control all the circumstances and fight through the chaos on our own as though somehow we're in control. We live often, Lord, as practicing atheists, people who claim with our lips to trust in you, but when the rubber hits the road and the chaos comes, we're practicing atheists. You're erased from our world, and we operate as though you are not with us, as though you do not matter. But your word declares that you indeed are with us, and that makes all the difference in the world. You do matter. And so, Lord, this morning I pray for those who are in the middle of a storm. I don't know the storm, but you know the storm. 
those whose calm has turned into chaos and they have been feverishly trying to get it under control to no avail. They've done everything that they know to do and things are getting worse. And they're afraid and they're anxious and they're worried. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself known to them this morning? Would they hear you saying those words you said to the disciples, where is your faith? Would they hear you saying, if you say you believe in me, start acting like it. Or turn their eyes toward you this morning. Help them to lay down all their feverish effort to control and trust in you. Trust in you to let the wind and the waves do what need to happen. Trust in you to save them in whatever way they need saving. Trust in you to bring them safely to the other shore. Lord, for the ones who are here today who don't know you, or maybe they say they believe in you, but the reality is they don't. May they see you for who you are this morning, their only comfort in life or death. May they not have just a, a foolish caricature in their minds of who you are, but may they see you as almighty God who is sovereign over all things, who has gone to a cross and died for their sins. Not to give them a comfortable and easy life, but to sanctify them and make them holy. To get them to their final destination safely. that they can submit themselves to you this morning. They can receive you as their Lord and Savior. And from that moment on, Lord, not a hair will fall from their head apart from your sovereign will. May they run to you and embrace you in repentance and faith. Lord, we pray for your glory and your sake alone. Amen.